Good morning. My name is Conrad Morse, and I serve on the Elder Council here at First Baptist Church. Today we'll be reading from Luke 17, 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You may be seated. Thank you, Conrad. And thank you, worship team. It's awesome. I uh, need to announce before uh, I get going here, um, we had mentioned last week that FBC Ashland was having a vote after their service about whether Adam Ingram was going to be their senior pastor and want to announce that it was a unanimous yes vote. So yeah, starting... Starting January 1st, Adam Ingram and family are pastoring over at our sister church and the church that planted us back in, what was it, 1887, I think. Um, so really cool to see. I think the, the if you can get, let, allow me to go Disney for a moment, the circle of life. Um, <laughs> they pour into us and now we pour back into them, brothers and sisters in Christ, spurring one another on uh, towards increased gospel fruitfulness and uh, continuing to fight against the darkness that prevails and tries to prevail against the church, but obviously has no ground. As Conrad read, we are in Luke 17 today, um, one of my, probably one of my favorite stories in Luke. I'm sure you've heard it said that laughter is the best medicine. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but there's actually some objective truth in that. Uh, There have been studies shown that show how laughing activates and then releases stress hormones within your body. And it raises and lowers your blood pressure to a level that was lower than when you started. Um, The physical action of laughing and the contraction and releasing of muscles leaves your body more relaxed and it increases blood circulation and oxygen circulation in your body that helps muscles heal and your body just calm down to a lower stress level. Um, It causes your brain to release endorphins that are basically your body's natural painkillers and cannot momentarily take away pretty significant amounts of pain. It's pretty impressive, the studies that they've done. And uh, long-term, your brain releases more neuropeptides if you tend to laugh more, and actually your immune system can be stronger if you tend to laugh more. It's, It's incredible what all the effects that it can have on your body simply by enjoying comedy and then the physical and neurological um, action of laughing. And that's all well and good for the physical body, but what about for your soul? What's the best medicine for your soul? 
Now, of course, laughter is certainly good for the soul as well. Gladdens the heart for sure. But have you ever had a season of your life where, where laughter doesn't fix it? Laughter isn't enough. I'm talking, you know, the dark night of the soul. If you're dealing with depression and anxiety and it's howling like hungry wolves, and even if you get to find a moment of reprieve, there's still just this, this question, this beckoning, this dark presence at the outside of the door that you know is just waiting to jump on you again. Or maybe you've received news of a loved one passing or just some other horrible news, and there's just a depth of grief that cannot be overcome by simply just laughing it off. Or perhaps it's not all that doom and gloomy for you, but you're just bored. You're just dissatisfied with life. The things that you used to laugh at, you're not laughing at anymore. The endless grind of a busy schedule and kids and work and whatever else is just kind of sucking some life out of you. You're never really finding lasting satisfaction in anything. It's just, well, a couple Netflix shows because it's easy and it's quick and it makes me forget about my life until I can go to bed. We've all done it. And for those of you in Christ, it's not that you are failing as a Christian when you're in these moments. It's not like, oh, your faith is so weak. You just need to have stronger faith. You just need to believe in God more. I mean, you're here at church, you're fellowshipping with people, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're doing the best you can to be Christ-like toward your kids, your co-workers, your neighbors. And yet there's just still this struggle. There's just this, this thing that you just can't get past. In case you need a nap or you just want the big idea right up front, the biblical answer is gratitude. And we're going to see exactly how that is true in this passage in three different ways, which Conrad already read for us. We're going to dive in three different ways in which I argue and believe that gratitude is the antidote and the best medicine for a restless and tumultuous soul. So turn with me to Luke 17, if you're not already there, verses 11 through 19. All right, show of hands, who likes to wait for packages in the mail? Who enjoys that waiting process? I uh, tend to be rather impatient when it comes to packages. I remember um, one day I was picking up my girls from uh, a friend's house they were staying at, and I got a notification on my ring doorbell that, you know, the postman was there. And he was standing there, and he wasn't doing anything. And I, I loaded up on my phone, and I'm like, oh, dang it. This is one of those you got to sign for, isn't it? And I've been waiting for this package, and I've been watching the tracking. I'm thinking, okay, it says it's going to be delivered by 5 p.m. I think I'm going to get home by 2. I'm probably going to be able to get the package. It'll be fine. And the one day the postman shows up at like 12 o'clock. And so here I am driving my kids home with my phone on the dashboard, watching the thing going, just, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Can you wait? And then I watch him walk away, and I'm going, no! the package. It got delivered the next day, by the way. <laughs> but I was so mad in that moment. I remember going, seriously, the one day the guy shows up early, we're like the last on his route. Most days I'm like, it's five o'clock. Is he showing up today? I don't know. The one day I'm not there. And then I started thinking, how ridiculous is this? I got so entitled 
about the convenience of this thing, this thing that I don't even need, that I didn't even know existed two weeks ago, that was shipped from 3,000 miles away in 48 hours, thanks to Amazon. I'm mad because now it's gonna take 72 hours. And then if that's not trite enough, I've started finding myself going back to brick and mortar stores because I don't want to wait two days. Why wait 48 hours if I could just drive to the store and find it? And then I'm mad because the store doesn't have it in stock because I'm buying everything online. <laughs> it's my own fault. But we do this. We're so quick to become pacified, entitled to all of the incredible things around us. And it steals our joy. Earlier in Luke, back in chapter 7, there's this story that kind of speaks to this same topic when Jesus goes and has dinner at a Pharisee's house. Chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 36. I think the verses are only start at 41 on the screen. <clears throat> Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Pop quiz. Who needed Jesus more, the Pharisee or the sinful woman? Both. Very good. You all pass. The Pharisee and the woman are exactly the same in reality of their sin and their brokenness and their position before God, but polar opposite in their perception of reality. The first thing that gratitude does for you as a medicinal purpose is it fixes your perspective. The woman in the story is a sinner of the city. It's a big euphemism that basically means she's likely a prostitute. The, everyone would avoid her. You get touched by her, you're unclean, you gotta go through this whole ritual. So the very fact that she's even touching Jesus, let alone inside the Pharisee's house, is a, a complete debacle on its own. But the point is, she is expressing her love, her gratitude to Jesus because she understands her position and she understands who Jesus is and what Jesus has to offer her. 
The Pharisee wants Jesus in his house because it's a status symbol. I got the prophet who everybody is hyped about and raved about to come into my house and eat a meal with me. That bestows honor upon my house. In a sense, by inviting Jesus, he is claiming he is worthy to have Jesus in his house. And yet, the sinful woman comes before Jesus and says, I know who you are, and I know what who you are means for my future. And so she pours out her gratitude for his coming crucifixion in a very, very public and kind of awkward way. The point here is you you cannot be grateful for what you think you're owed. Entitlement is the antithesis of gratitude. From inferences in the text back in Luke 17, when we read the story of the 10 lepers, the way that it's written has us believe that likely the other nine lepers were of Jewish descent and that the, the one who came back, the foreigner, the Samaritan, stood out from the rest of them. And he's the only one that comes back and expresses gratitude to God and acknowledgement for the mercy that he received even though he was unworthy. Now, the text doesn't say why the other nine didn't come back. We don't know that for sure, but I have a couple of guesses. One, I mean, let's be honest, they were probably just super excited. They've been ostracized from society and have to call out unclean, unclean, and not touch anybody and not risk crossing paths with anybody that they might make unclean and allow them to uh, force them to not be able to be in fellowship at the temple. But the reality is that that is a, a self-centered look at their own suffering. I see a way out for my suffering to get back to what I want to do. And it's okay to be excited about that, but they look at Jesus and they say, Master, have mercy on us. Take this away from me so that I can get my life back on track, that I can get my life back on the rails and the plans that I had so I can get back to enjoying the things that I love. I sort of experienced this to some degree over the last couple weeks. My youngest daughter, Sophie, has... I think she's popping teeth, but I'm not really sure. But for whatever reason, the last two or three weeks, about every other night, she just decides that sleep's not on the menu. And it takes between, you know, three and five hours to put her to sleep. Or if she does go to sleep, she'll wake up at three and then won't go to sleep unless you hold her. So, you know, Megan and I are running on a little bit of fumes over the last few weeks with this lottery 50-50. Is she going to sleep? Are we going to sleep? I don't know. Let's flip a coin and see. And um, <clears throat> I found myself just getting angry at her. It doesn't matter what she's going through. I just get angry at her. I want my wife back. I want my evenings back. I want my sleep back. I want to know that I'm going to sleep through the night. And I just, Lord, one time I was holding her, just sitting in the room at like 3 a.m. or whatever it was. And the Lord goes, aren't you just so glad that she's such a good sleeper normally? <laughs> okay, okay, God, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I am. You're right. She normally sleeps 12 hours. I should be so much more thankful than I am. But it's amazing how quickly this blessing of children who sleep well was ripped from my grasp, and I instantly went, Lord, why did you? That's mine. The second idea I have related to why the other nine didn't come back is that since they are likely Jewish, 
At some level, God owes this to them. He's the Jewish Messiah, after all. If he is who he says he is and he keeps his covenant promises, then he owes me something because I am a Jew. I am the promised child of God. I deserve what God has to offer me. Why would I go back and thank God for doing his job? If you remember, Samaritans were like half-breed Jews. They were almost worse than Gentiles. They were of half-Jewish, half-Gentile descent, and the mixing of that bloodline was an aberration for um, anybody in the Old Testament. And so they were reviled by Jews. They were seen as dogs, lower than actually human status. And so the Samaritan knows he's unworthy. His whole life, he's known he's unworthy. We see a similar response to the Samaritan woman in John 4, the woman at the well, when Jesus talks to him. She's like, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Don't you know who I am? I'm not, I'm not a human to you Jews. Why are you engaging with me in conversation? And so the fact that the Samaritan has this, this proper perspective, even if it is unfortunate and honestly racist and all kinds of other things, it puts him in a place to be able to see the reality of what Jesus just did for him. You see, gratitude fixes your perspective because it forces God's perspective on your reality. It forces God's reality, which is reality, on your reality. It helps you see reality the way that God does. In order to be truly grateful, you have to see things clearly the way God does. It's, it's hard to be thankful when you have a skewed perspective on who is in charge and who is owed what and who deserves what. I mean, if you're like the nine lepers, you get some twisted thought in your head that, you know what, Jesus owes me this. He owes me the answer to this prayer. He owes me this blessing. He owes me this healing. Then when it finally does arrive, you'll be like I am with that package. Finally, it's about time. When I should be grateful that this thing even exists, when I should be grateful that the Lord is so gracious to even look upon me and give me a second chance with Jesus at the cross. Practicing gratitude takes me out of the center of my universe and puts God, the giver, the creator, the sustainer, back where he belongs. So gratitude fixes your perspective, first of all. The second thing gratitude does is strengthens faith. You remember those as-seen-on-TV workout equipment ads? I feel like they were always on with Saturday morning cartoons. You'd be like, Bugs Bunny, Bowflex. Bugs Bunny, P90X. <laughs> and the, the people that are selling them, they always have these chiseled abs, and they say, oh, you're going to look like this in 30 days. And they show women who have clearly never given birth or eaten food. And they show men who have obviously spent 12 hours a day in a gym, probably some extra chemical activity going on with a personal trainer. I could buy all the equipment I want with two-day shipping. But if I never actually use it, I will never be strengthened. You know how often I see those things at yard sales? Have you ever seen somebody selling one of those that looked like they benefited from the product? <laughs> Well, I'm done with that. It did its job. No. Gratitude strengthens your faith. I'll go back to Luke 17. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along beside Samaria and Galilee. 
As he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. This wasn't a, a, a weird command for Jesus. This was actually, according to Mosaic law, the way that you were supposed to deal with being cleansed of leprosy is once you started showing signs of being healed and the disease was starting to shrivel up and you were starting to notice the skin return to a normal color, at a certain point you would go to the priest and then he would meet you outside the camp and he would do a physical examination, much just like a doctor, and then see for sure whether or not he believes this is clearing up and whether it's maybe still in an infectious state. But the thing that's, that's weird about this is Jesus does it backwards. He doesn't look at them and say, oh yeah, look, you guys are getting better. Go ahead and show yourselves to the priest. He says, go now and show yourselves to the priest while you still look exactly like you have looked for the last however many years. We have no idea how long they've been dealing with this. And so it's interesting because we get a glimpse of all 10 of these lepers showing the same level of faith at this point. All of them believe Jesus' words and turn and go to the priest. And then it says in verse 10, let's see, at the end of 14, as they went, they were cleansed. So it took them taking a step first before the healing started to begin. And so I I want to commend all 10 lepers at this point for all acting in faith. None of them doubted Jesus. They said, hey, he said it, I believe it, let's do it. And as they walked, they started to see the results. But it's interesting what Jesus says here in response to the Samaritan, starting in verse 17, he says, we're not 10 cleansed, where are the nine? It's almost as if he expected all 10 to come back, which is kind of interesting. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, listen, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus makes a differentiation between the Samaritan's faith and the faith of the other nine. And it's really interesting because if you look at the Hebrew here, made you well can also be equally accurately translated as saved you. And I think he means both things here. Jesus acknowledges that the Samaritan's faith did allow him to be healed, but it's not merely that good job, your physical life has been improved. Go on, enjoy the rest of your physical life. He said, rise and go your way. Your eternal life has now been changed. This is not merely a medical diagnosis. This is an eternal soul state diagnosis that Jesus gives to the Samaritan leper and not to the other nine. Jesus is making a distinction between the Samaritan's faith and the faith of the other nine lepers. What's the difference? I mean, all, all 10 obeyed Jesus, right? Jesus didn't tell them to come back. All he told them to do was follow the law and take that first step of faith. So it seems a little bit weird that he is placing some, you know, unwritten expectation on them, as it may seem. But the reality is, is what Jesus is communicating is this. It's one thing to believe Jesus has power to do stuff, It's another thing entirely to believe Jesus is your Lord. Faith in what Jesus is capable of is not saving faith. Faith in who Jesus is 
is saving faith. In the book of James, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says this, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know exactly what Jesus is capable of, probably more than we are. That doesn't make them Christian. You see, works are the evidence of faith, the outpouring of faith. And one of the greatest evidences and outpourings of faith is the outward expression of gratitude. The quality of health, the quality and health of your faith can be measured by the frequency and sincerity of your gratitude. I'll say that again. The quality and health of your faith can be measured by the frequency and the sincerity of your gratitude. The other nine's faith may have made them physically well, and that's all well and good. That's awesome, good for them. But the Samaritan's faith has healed his soul and set him apart for eternity. Have you ever noticed that the happiest people tend to be the most thankful? In my household, we call them joy germs. My wife used to be called that when she was little. It's just this infectious, like it doesn't matter how your day is going. When she pops up in your lap and says, hey, how you doing? It just changes everything. And it, I just, I run into people like this and it's, it's just this joy that overflows. And I always, always, always hear Thanksgiving pouring from their mouths. They're so quick to be grateful for the tiniest little things. The, the people who's, who's doing their job, Thank you so much for doing your job. Thank you for clearing the table, you know, at the restaurant, talking to the waiter. Some people go, well, you better. I'm paying you. I'm waiting to see how well you do it so I can give you a tip based on it. Meanwhile, the joy germs are just pouring out gratitude to everybody around them. I wonder if the Samaritan was a joy germ like that. In one sense, I don't, I don't think he was more grateful that he was physically healed than the others. I think all 10 were equally grateful for the fact that their bodies have been healed and they can go see their friends again, go kiss their wives and their husbands and their children again. But he came back to Jesus and he lay at his feet in gratitude and overwhelming excitement. Not that he was healed, but I think that Jesus is the Messiah and that this healing was just a foretaste, a glimpse, just in a mirror dimly the reality of the goodness of the kingdom of God coming to earth and Jesus providing a way for us to enter into eternity with the Father. I think he was more excited about his eternal state with Jesus than his temporary state for however else, however much longer he lived. If you do a study through scripture, every single person Jesus healed dies again. Even if they died once, they die again. Jesus' healing on this earth was never meant to be the end goal. It's an absolutely incredible blessing. And we still pray for it. We still seek it. We still hope for it. Absolutely. And he is still a good physician. But it's never the end goal of why he is here and why he is working in somebody's life. Once gratitude fixes your perspective, you're able to be grateful for not just any random things, but the right things. I would like to think that the other nine lepers were grateful, genuinely, that Jesus healed them. But I don't know that they were grateful that he was the Messiah. I don't know that they were grateful that he was the Savior of the world, ushering in the kingdom of God. 
And I know scripture says that we are to be childlike in our faith, but I, if all we ever do is like a child thanking God for material blessings and for situational things, and we never mature into thanking God for who he is, what he has done, why he is here, or thinking about his complex character and nature and just reveling in the beauty of what that is and just thanking, thank you, God, for being the way that you are, then I fear that our, our faith may remain small and weak. I think gratitude strengthens, deepens, matures your faith. It's actually a really good exercise to do in, in prayer time. Try this sometime where you just dwell on an attribute of God. Or in your prayer, you get past all of the, thank you, Lord, for this material thing, this material thing, this material thing. Please provide this material thing, this material thing, this. And he loves to hear that. So don't stop praying those prayers. But once you get through all of that, you just land on an attribute of God. I'm going to try faithfulness. What would it look like if I was just thankful for his faithfulness? Because inevitably it forces you to look back through your life for the evidences of those attributes of God showing up in your life. And a lot of the time it doesn't show up in material possession. It doesn't show up in tangible things. It's, it's the way you felt that night. It's the way his presence was tangible in that moment. It's the way somehow you felt hope in the middle of what felt like incredible despair and an unending darkness. If your faith is feeling weak or stretching thin, try practicing gratitude. So gratitude brings clarity, perspective. Gratitude strengthens faith. And the third thing, gratitude energizes worship and evangelism. I would argue that the outpouring of a healthy faith, as it has been given a proper perspective, as it has been strengthened by gratitude, the outpouring of healthy faith is worship and evangelism. Thanksgiving's in a couple weeks. Super excited. It feels like it's coming really fast this year, although I say that every year. But like, I'm already listening to Christmas music because two weeks from now, we're singing them in this church. Can you believe it? And some people go, woo! And some people go, only four weeks, only four weeks. Sorry, I love Christmas, so you're going to have to deal with it because I'm the worship pastor. <laughs> but we make plans to be together. We take time off of work to enjoy a meal together for Thanksgiving. We spend time together. Why? Why do we do this? Why don't we just go to work and get double time for those of us who could work on a holiday? I think gratitude is best experienced in relational intimacy. If you look at the author Luke's wording of the Samaritan's actions when he comes back to Jesus, it's actually something that Luke says a lot all throughout Scripture. I don't remember how many times, but it's like 10 or 15 times at least in the book of Luke where he says this in verse 15. When the Samaritan saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. That happens all the time throughout the book of Luke, this praising God with a loud voice. The point is, you're not going to miss this guy. It's not like, hey, Joe, did you hear that crazy Samaritan running down the road, like hooting and hollering the other day? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Everybody knew this guy was healed. He was yelling it as he was running back to Jesus. There was no way you missed this guy. And there was no question about what happened or who was responsible for it. 
The Samaritan's overflowing gratitude inherently brings glory to God and a witness to the gospel. His outcry of a loud voice is proclamation of the gospel. Look what Jesus has done for me. He didn't just write a thank you card and throw it in the mail, you know, hoping Jesus would see it in a few weeks. Oh, thanks, Jesus. That was really cool of you. He fell on his face in worship, overflowing gratitude that was infectious. This brings to mind one of my favorite worship songs of all time, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The line in the, in the first verse, streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Do you remember what lepers were required to do by law when anyone was near them? They cry out unclean. That was their, their only job, essentially, was to stay out of the way and to tell everyone with a loud voice, unclean. And this leper gets to run through the streets yelling, clean, made whole, holy, restored to right relationship. I just, I can't imagine what an absolutely beautiful picture that would have been to see a leper through the streets yelling clean after having to yell unclean for who knows how many years. That's the goodness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus poured out on this outcast sinner. And, and it also shows that the wholeness of Jesus' healing. He doesn't just fix temporary solutions. He offers an eternal solution to an eternal problem that has no other fix. So gratitude energizes worship, but it also energizes evangelism. I would like to say and argue that Worship, especially as it relates to the way we do it in Sunday morning, singing, praising the Lord, praying, that kind of thing. Worship is vertical gratitude. I would argue evangelism is horizontal gratitude. We'll see this in Psalm 68. We don't have it up on the screen. Psalm 68, sorry, 66, if you want to turn there. Starting in verse 1, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. We see this rhythm happen a lot in the Psalms and in the other songs throughout Scripture. And it's an example of what I'm talking about here, where your vertical worship of God inevitably overflows into a horizontal worship of God by proclamation, by evangelism. This thanksgiving ends up overflowing into this, I cannot keep it to myself. I have got to tell the whole world. I have got to show somebody what he has done for me. But if what God has done for you isn't a big deal, why would you bother sharing it? It seems to me by the actions of the nine lepers, the healing somehow wasn't that big a deal. And I don't know whether it was because of entitlement. I don't know if it was because they were just distracted by the newfound freedom of not being a leper anymore. I, I, I don't know. 
But clearly, it was not a big enough deal for them to go proclaim what just happened. But if your perspective is fixed by gratitude and you have a strengthened faith by gratitude, the natural outcome, I would argue, is wanting to share with others that they might experience what you have just gone through and to know the goodness that you have experienced. Genuine gratitude is infectious. And that's how I think generally evangelism should be. It's an infectious outpouring. Now, certainly there is an element where days we just do not feel like sharing, and that is okay. That does not mean you are not grateful. That does not mean you are full of sin. That does not mean you do not love the Lord. I understand. I am an incredibly raging introvert most of the time. And I have these random sparks of extrovert energy and it lasts about 23 minutes. And then I'm like, where's the closet? So I get it. Evangelism is not easy for me. There are so many other unpleasant things I'd rather do than share the gospel with the random person on the street. You are not alone in that. Some people have the gift and I bless you and I encourage you and I'm envious, but that's a sin, so I'll work on it. But I would argue that even the most timid of you, the most introverted of you, the most scared of you, the most feeling like you don't understand theology deep enough to actually share with anyone of you will muster and find strength and courage you did not know existed if you are practicing gratitude. Because the most genuine form of evangelism is this overflow of the relationship you have with the Lord and the gratitude for all that he has done and is doing in your life. And that's often the most effective evangelism. We see that all through scripture. In fact, um, the woman at the well that I mentioned a little bit earlier, her evangelism is she goes into town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And in one sense, it's like, yeah, everyone knows everything you've ever done. You've kind of been around. But she's so excited by the reality of who Jesus is that he saw right through her. And she saw her need for eternal living water and didn't care about her past. Laid out her past before her and said, so what? Take the living water. And she runs back into the town, probably one of the most shamed women in all of that town, I mean, she comes to the well at a time when all the other women don't, so she doesn't have to worry about the gossip and the looks and the stares. And now she's running through the streets of the town. She's afraid of the people, saying, come, come and see. That's gratitude right there. That's evangelism, worship, pouring out from gratitude. So if you're feeling weak in one of these areas, whether your perspective is off, or maybe your faith just feels like it's faltering, not that you're losing, you don't know if you're going to be able to love the Lord, but just, you know, you make, that was a silly mistake, that was a silly decision, why did I choose that thing, why did I turn on Netflix for three or four episodes instead of just praying for five minutes, come on, why can't I even do that? or if you're <laughs> afraid of evangelism, or you feel like coming to church is just a chore. I'll be, it's my job to come to church, and I still feel like it's a chore sometimes. You're not alone in that. 
I think the answer often is practicing gratitude. Now, it's not the only answer. There is certainly a place for medical diagnosis and Christian friends and counselors and elders coming around you and praying for you. If you're dealing with depression, anxiety, spiritual warfare, absolutely. I'm not saying that, oh, you just need to be more thankful. And that's, that's foolish. This is a multifaceted solution. But I think one of the key driving factors that it's kind of circular because it both shows where your health is at, but I think it also improves your health is how are you doing in the, in the gratitude area of your life? Are you thankful often? Are you thankful quickly? What is your response to situations? Is it, Lord, why are these children not sleeping? Or is it, thank you, Lord, that normally they do? I want to close with 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 23. This is kind of the benediction of 1 Thessalonians, the last little hit for Paul. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm going to keep reading, but it's amazing to me that how often we wonder what is the will of God. And, and, and we question, Lord, what do you want me to do in this circumstance? How do you want me? Who should I marry? What job should I take? What should I have for lunch? I hope none of you were that worried about it. He just wants you to eat. But Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks. This is God's will for your life in Christ. To rejoice, to pray nonstop, and to be thankful in every circumstance. And he goes on in 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, holding fast to what is good. He's saying, don't be a grouch. Don't shoot everybody else down, but test it against the word. Be wise. Abstain from every form of evil. In verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I really like the way that the message words this. And it's a good paraphrase. It's a good way to read, to just get a different perspective. I wouldn't use it as the only translation. But I really like what it says here for verses 23 and 24. <clears throat> May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of Master, Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. I love that. The God who makes everything holy and whole. That's what he did for the Samaritan. When he comes back with gratitude and he falls before his feet, and acknowledges that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my Savior. That's what he's doing in that moment. Jesus makes him holy and whole. And that's the desire that I have for every single one of you here, is that you would be holy and whole. 
And I think one of the greatest ways to do that is practicing gratitude. As you come to Jesus thanking him for who he is, as you grow in maturity and thank him for all that he has done for you and all that he's going to do for you because there are some incredible promises of the age to come. This life, as maybe amazing as it is for you, as, as good as it may be, is a shadow. It's pathetic compared to what's coming. And if there is nothing to be thankful for in your life in this exact moment, and I promise you there is, but I know it can be hard to see, there is always an infinite list of things to be thankful for in the age to come. And that gratitude can also strengthen our faith in remaining steadfast that, yeah, that day is coming and I am secure. And I'm going to thank him for that because no matter what is going on right now, there is infinite better in the age to come. And all I have to do is wait and endure what Paul calls a light and momentary affliction. Because when we get there, we're going to look back and go, (laughs) why was I ever worried? Why was I ever afraid? Why did that ever throw me for such a loop? This doesn't even compare to how good God is when we get to finally be in his presence. Will you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you. We should be saying that over and over again, every single moment of our lives. Thank you. The list is endless. For your creation, the the handiwork, the absolute glorious evidence of your meticulous care the ways we still don't even understand how our own brain works and let you created it. The infinite number of stars that we could never possibly reach and could never possibly count, you know their number, you crafted each one of them. Thank you, Lord, for creating a world that is good, a world that is enjoyable. Thank you, Lord, for creating food that tastes good, experiences that feel good, sights that are amazing to behold. Thank you for making your glory so clear to all of us if we just open our eyes and look. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, to your people through all of history, over and over, faithless people who keep running after horrible trinkets instead of the eternal God. Thank you, Lord, for remaining faithful for thousands of years. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that we do not have to earn our salvation, that we are secure in your love, that we are whole and holy because of what you have done. Thank you, Lord, that you promised to sustain us through the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who inhabits us, who gives us strength to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Thank you, Lord, for the age to come that we can look forward with incredible anticipation at the unimaginable perfection that is beholding you now and waiting for us in what will be in reality a blip compared to eternity. Lord, give us the strength, give us the courage, give us the (laughs) minds that are not forgetful of just being grateful. Help us practice gratitude Help us practice 
seeing reality for what it is and running through the streets with abandon like the Samaritan leper, yelling, clean, clean, made whole by that guy, Jesus Christ. Come see what he has done for me and get a piece of that action because he is offering it to everyone. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we close with one final song together?